Beast Boys presents the 1965 World Series. From Metropolitan Stadium in Bloomington, Minnesota, the Los Angeles Dodgers meeting the Minnesota Twins. This is Ben Scully along with Ray Scott, ready to bring you all the action of the seventh and deciding game of the 1965 World Series. This game is being sent your way by the Gillette Safety Razor Company and Chrysler Corporation, who also bring you exclusively on NBC such outstanding sports events as the All-Star Baseball Game, NCAA Football, and the 1966 Rose Bowl Game to say thank you for using their product. This game is authorized under television rights granted by the Commissioner of Baseball solely for the entertainment of our audience and any publication, reproduction, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this game without the express written consent of the commissioner is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of the program, such as by charging admission for its showing, is similarly prohibited unless authorized in writing by the commissioner. Metropolitan Stadium in Bloomington, Minnesota, the scene of the final game of the 1965 World Series. To refresh your memory, the dimensions. 344 down the left field line. Falling away to 365 in left center. 430 to dead center. A symmetrical ballpark as far as the power alleys are concerned. It goes to 365 in right center. And then down the right field line, favoring a left-hand batter by 10 feet. 330. The field is in excellent condition. The Marine Corps Color Guard assuming their places in center field. Bloomington, Minnesota and the nearby area hit by an electrical storm early this morning. In the wee small hours, it poured in Minnesota. But it gave way to bright blue skies and it looks like weather will not be a problem. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Good. Golly, Miss Mellon. I thought we were almost done. Hey, hey, everybody. How you doing? My name is Tim Hanlon. How's it going? Uh, it's uh, your uh, weekly shot in the arm from the world of forgotten sports. We like to call it good seats still available. Uh, it's our curious little journey each and every week into what used to be in pro sports. And uh, we thank you for finding us, downloading us, putting us in your earbuds, and Otherwise, uh, consuming uh, this week's uh, here episode. We appreciate it. Uh, we are uh, going back to uh, the um, the realm of Stadia. We like to uh, throw in every once in a while some recollections uh, about various palaces of the past where games have been played and legends uh, have been burnished and memories uh, were made. And uh, this week is uh, sort of the latest installment in our occasional journey into those little uh, exploits. Uh, our old pal Stu Thornley, we haven't talked to in about three years or so, is back. Uh, previous episode uh, around the New York Polo Grounds, all various versions of that from, uh, geez, May of 2019. It's been a long time, and we're welcome, welcoming back Stu for this week's journey into the uh, maybe a little less uh, remembered and or celebrated, but certainly very um, uh, important in the memory of uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and the state of uh, uh, Minnesota sports fans. That's the old Met, Metropolitan Stadium. 
um, a uh, stadium that um, was instrumental uh, in bringing pro sports uh, and all that comes with that uh, to the uh, burgeoning metropolitan area of the Twin Cities uh, in the early 1960s. Uh, the stadium itself was built uh, in, well, it, it opened up, I think, in 1956. I think it broke ground in 55. It was done really quickly. Uh, and we get into uh, some of the reasons for that. I, I wouldn't call it modular, but it was certainly, um, it's it felt incomplete, I guess, when you sort of see it on television. Uh, there were components of it that were not sort of all fully connected. And uh, and there's various reasons of that. But um, it was built uh, in the uh, late 50s as uh, pretty much as bait to get a, a Major League Baseball team. Uh, and uh, not only did uh, it become successful in doing so, the first version of the Washington Senators, one of, by the way, the oldest teams consecutively in, in Major League Baseball. I think the uh, the original Washington Senators that became the Minnesota Twins in uh, 1961 officially began in 1901, way back when, at the earliest uh, stages of the American League. So I think people sort of forget uh, Minnesota Twins have been around for a hell of a long time, one of the one of the longest. Um, when you incorporate their uh, their previous uh, incarnation as the original uh, or well the first I guess uh, version of the modern day if you will uh, Washington Senators uh, the Twins arrived in at sixty one but uh, the stadium was done by fifty six so the Minneapolis Millers uh, they the uh, crosstown uh, minor league rivals of the St Paul Saints um, inhabited Metropolitan Stadium for a good four or five seasons. And uh, were uh, uh, unceremoniously or, or uh, perhaps expectedly kicked out at the end of the 60 season when uh, everybody dropped everything for uh, welcoming with open arms Major League Baseball, the American League, and the Minnesota Twins in 1961. And, oh, by the way, as we'll learn in our conversation with Stu coming up, uh, also at the same time came the Minnesota Vikings of uh, the NFL, that uh, was also part of the mix. The AFL, as we know from previous episodes, was was starting to get uh, underway and, and was looking at Minnesota as its own uh, team uh, with the start of the AFL. Uh, uh, various uh, intrigue there. And uh, ultimately, what happened was that the uh, ownership group that was uh, talking to the AFL essentially uh, became um, emboldened and encouraged by the NFL uh, to not only um, uh, convert, shall we say, the AF from their AFL, but to wait a year and uh, and join uh, in the same year, 1961, as the Twins. So uh, all of a sudden, in 1961, what a year to be in the Minneapolis-St. Paul metropolitan area, because from zero pro outdoor teams to two uh, in this new uh, and very intriguing uh, looking and constructed metropolitan stadium, the Met, um, you heard in our little intro there, there's Vin Scully calling uh, Game 7 or the introduction of Game 7. By the way, that was an original kinescope from the NBC television network uh, network broadcast uh, from the uh, World Series Game Number 7, October 14th, 1965, just a few weeks before yours truly was born. But I digress. Uh, where the Dodgers uh, beat the Twins 2-0 on the, uh, the arm strength of Sandy Koufax, of course, uh, beating Jim Cott uh, with the decision. And it was a game-time decision whether Koufax was going to pitch or not, but he did. And 
Uh, I think the Dodgers certainly were, were happy he did so. Um, but it was also uh, a part of the amazing ride because here's the team that started in 61 in their new incarnation as the Twins. And uh, a mere four seasons later, here they are playing for the uh, the World Series. Um, not successful, but boy, what a uh, what a ride in the early 60s for, for uh, Minneapolis uh, and St. Paul and the whole region, frankly, for uh, pro sports. Uh, but it's it's a fascinating uh, conversation with Stu. Uh, he is the author of the new book uh, published by the Sabre folks called Metropolitan Stadium, Memorable Games at Minnesota's Diamond on the Prairie. And uh, it's a it's a it's great and thoroughly detailed. Uh, if you are interested in uh, the most interesting uh, games in the history of that stadium uh, in the realm of baseball, Millers and Twins, uh, you are going to be rewarded and then some with the, the uh, thoroughly researched, as you know, Stu Thornley uh, book productions are, uh, a book uh, that's uh, now available. Again, it's called Metropolitan Stadium Memorable Games at Minnesota's Diamond on the Prairie. But you'll hear in this conversation, we're not just devoted to the Twins and the Millers and baseball. We also get into uh, the various interests and roles and influences of the Vikings and football. Uh, remember, this is a stadium, Metropolitan Stadium, that was just before the advent of the multi-purpose, shall we call them, donut-type stadiums. And and um, uh, we uh, have love-hate relationships with those, right? The old uh, Riverfront Stadium and Three River Stadium, et cetera, those sort of uh, rounded, uh, uh, accommodating to both, but uh, uh, in, uh, loved by neither uh, sport. And we also get into uh, the other major sport. Uh, and team that inhabited the Met near the end of its life. And that's the Minnesota Kicks of the grand old North American Soccer League. Uh, they had a role to play, too. And boy, did they bring some big crowds and excitement and tailgating, dare I say tailgating, uh, to the enterprise as well. So all of that and more. We're getting into the nostalgia and the memories of the old Metropolitan Stadium, now where the Mall of America now sits. Uh, with our conversation with Stu Thornley coming up in a moment's time. Fun, interesting, always intriguing. And a couple of uh, fun uh, sponsors this week uh, that I think get you in the mood and get you ready for this conversation. Uh, first of all, our friends at OldSchoolShirts.com. Uh, it's P.F. Wilson uh, and his uh, band of merry women and men. Um, you know OldSchoolShirts.com. Uh, it's uh, it's like the name implies. Um, it's not just sports, but it's also all kinds of uh, memories in T-shirt form around, I don't know, things you might remember from your childhood. Let's say radio stations, uh, perhaps retailers, maybe uh, eateries uh, or fun places where you might have gotten an ice cream cone uh, over the years. All of those things and more, especially, of course, all those great teams and, and leagues of the past. Uh, at OldSchoolShirts.com and just go to the uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul section, how appropriate, and you'll find a wealth of shirts devoted to great teams that uh, are no longer with us, like the Minnesota Fighting Saints and uh, the Minnesota Pipers. Uh, of course, though, there are two, count them, uh, beautiful uh, uh, renditions of the Metropolitan Stadium shirts. Got uh, a beautiful sort of um, uh, drawing there of of, of the Met uh, and a couple of different uh, uh, flavors of colors for you. Um, There's a Minneapolis uh, Miller's shirt there, uh, as well as uh, Metrodome shirts. Uh, that's where, of course, everybody ran to uh, when uh, the Met was deemed as uh, being obsolete. 
uh, starting in 19, what, 82 or so. Um, but yeah, plenty of uh, great things there. And of course, there's a Minnesota Kicks shirt there with the great uh, sort of a uh, cartoon guy kicking the ball That's uh, that sort of then resides as the uh, the dotted I in the Kicks uh, uh, iconography and logo. All that great stuff and more. And a lot of great uh, memories there. Oldschoolshirts.com. Promo code for you there is Good Seats for 10% off all of your purchases. Make sure you use that promo code Good Seats for 10% off. And while you're online, why don't you hop over to Ebbets Field Flannels, our pals there out in Seattle. That's Ebbets, E-B-B-E-T-S dot com. And there you're going to find some great Minnesota Kicks stuff, including a gorgeous 19... Well, it says here 1967 vintage ball cap. As as you astute fans know, uh, the Minnesota Kicks uh, didn't uh, join the league until 1976. So uh, a little bit of a, a glitch there uh, in terms of historical accuracy. But the, I guarantee you, if you look at the uh, Minnesota Kicks vintage ball cap, you will fall in love with it because it's a gorgeous sort of baby blue with that uh, similarly gorgeous and memorable and iconic Minnesota Kicks logo with that cartoon guy, same as uh, mentioned earlier. Um, it's it's I, truly it's one of a kind. It's beautiful, and uh, it's there for you at ebbets.com. And um, while you're there, just scroll down the page, and you'll see the also uh, similarly uh, equally gorgeous Minnesota Kicks 1976. There you got the got the name right that uh, the uh, date right that time soccer jacket. Uh, it's um, very similar in construct and in uh, quality uh, to those gorgeous baseball jackets that the uh, Ebbets Field Flannels has as well. Um, while you're there, you'll see other jackets from some other teams like the old Washington Diplomats and the LA Aztecs, the Kansas City uh, Spurs from 1968, the Toronto Metros, Croatia, 1975. Uh, but it's but the Minnesota Kicks one is gorgeous. It's also sort of in a satiny baby blue. Uh, and that is there for you too. Lots and lots of more stuff, of course, and I'm I'm not doing any. Uh, I'm just I'm doing it uh, partial justice for sure. At Ebbets Field Flannels, and again, that's Ebbets E B B E T S dot com, and the promo code for you there to save ten percent off all of your purchases is Good Seats Ten. That's Good Seats and the number ten. Thank you to Ebbets Field Flannels. Thank you to OldSchoolShirts.com. and thank you, of course, for uh, your patronage of them and for listening to us. Let's get into our conversation. Let's remember the Met. Let's dial it back. Here we go. It's our conversation with Stu Thornley. Uh, we had it just uh, about seven or eight days ago, and uh, it's fun times and great memories. Here it comes. Please, as always, enjoy. For our audience, give us uh, a, a reminder of your connection to uh, Minnesota baseball and Minnesota sports generally, because you're you're more than just a uh, an interested observer, I would I would argue. Well, I've grown up with Minnesota sports, especially baseball, and for many years as a fan. But and then younger years playing up to high school, uh, being bat boy for the Minnesota Gophers, and just finding ways to be involved in baseball any way I could. Uh, it was um, reading about it too, the history and doing reports for school on it but finally when i joined the society for american baseball research in 1979 i saw the opportunity to produce research not just read about others people's research but to go out and do things myself and started more locally with things that had happened in minnesota going back to the 
1880s with so as I wanted things to research and write about and had an interest in this that's what I started doing so the first book that I did came out in 1988 a history of the Minneapolis Millers and done a lot of other things since uh, mostly on local sports local baseball but by staying and doing whatever I can with public address announcing and umpiring and public address announcing is probably what got me my opportunities to do official scoring. Uh, sometimes I was at the game and they'd say, okay, you're the PA announcer. Uh, it was uh, some community college tournaments in the 1980s. And they'd say, you're the official scorer too. And I later did public address announcing for an independent team in Minneapolis and got into official scoring and then with, with major league baseball got involved with the game day operation i've been doing that since even before it was operated by major league baseball and just being there at the twins games in the press box uh, right place right time when they needed another official score so i've been doing that since 2007. So your connection to to Minneapolis sports generally and, and baseball in particular, I'm guessing, right, is um, is 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 about as uh, authentic, I think, as we're going to find in terms of understanding uh, the lineage of both uh, uh, the minor league and the major league versions of baseball. Right. Yeah. And it's really just, uh, you know, so much being being a baseball crazy kid and carrying that hobby into finding productive ways to do it when I got older and that that's kind of a message for a lot of people, whatever their, whatever their kid, kid interests are, there's good, good ways to continue to go with that. And I've, I've always said research and writing is a real constructive outlet for these kinds of things. Well, you, you've, you're the author of a, a bunch of different books. I, our previous episode 114, if for, for our listeners who have not uh, listened to that episode, we talked about, uh, the old polo grants in New York, but um, a little bit more close to home with this one. Um, maybe a little bit of a, of a scene set uh, about uh, this stadium known as the Met Metropolitan Stadium, where, frankly, right now, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the Mall of America now sits. Is that true? Yeah, there's a shopping center on that site now, and they have at least marked the location of home plate. Uh, in there. And I might add that the Society for American Baseball Research, we've been working for the past few years on a book on game stories of memorable games at Metropolitan Stadium. And that just came out, just got the notice today, got the PDF version. And so there is a book out on Metropolitan Stadium with a compilation of a lot of memorable games. But that's where I went to my first game, 1962. Jim Cott shut out Cleveland on three hits. Bob Allison hit two home runs. Vic Powers stole home. I I was already hooked on baseball because I remember how much, how much excitement there was when the Twins came to town. Even though I was five going on six when the Twins started playing, Everybody had a Win Twins bumper sticker, Twins hats all over the place. And I'd watch the games on TV. And I, it just seemed like as a kid, you were supposed to embrace baseball. And I did. And then getting to my first game at Met Stadium. And I went to many more over the next 20 years. And it was a good, good baseball stadium by the 80s. It was getting a little older. And everybody wanted the fancy stadiums with the... Uh, 
with the suites and the, all, all these other ways of getting revenue. Um, but th it started, it was built to lure a major league baseball team here because in 1953, Milwaukee got a team from Boston and then cities like Kansas city and Minneapolis, St. Paul perked up and thought maybe we can get a team. And they quickly discovered that they, there's no place for them to play. Uh, if they could have gotten the Philadelphia athletics to move here, Instead of Kansas City, well, the reason they couldn't was they didn't even they didn't have any place that would work for the team even on a temporary basis. So the Minneapolis interests set their sights on building a stadium and then going to work on getting a team, and they put it in a, a suburb, not as a way to assuage St. Paul people because there's big rivalry between Minneapolis and St. Paul, and. It wasn't that they were fearful that St. Paul people wouldn't come to Minneapolis for the stadium. So let's put it in the suburbs. St. Paul people weren't that excited about it anyway. Uh, and they were trying to, they built their own stadium to try to lure a team. Um, but after that first wave of teams moving into other cities, into Milwaukee, Baltimore, Kansas City, no, that first wave was gone. And then the hopes were on getting the New York Giants because the New York Giants owned the minor league team, the Minneapolis Millers, that became the first tenant of Metropolitan Stadium. But the Giants ended up going all the way to the West Coast. And it was finally expansion. Um, they were looking at trying to get some other teams, Cincinnati and Cleveland, to move in. Uh, the the Everything that was happening, especially after New York, New York lost its National League team, um, was the, the Continental League, a third major league, which is finally what drove expansion in the early 60s. And the Twin Cities had been trying to get the Washington Senators to move here. They were having trouble getting permission to do that because the uh, they didn't Major League Baseball did not want to abandon the nation's capital especially with Congress looking at things like its antitrust exemption. But with expansion, baseball was able to put a new team in Washington and then allow Calvin Griffith to move his team here. So finally, 1961, we got the Minnesota Twins and they played 21 seasons at Met Stadium. Well, that, that's a good divi divining rod or, or dividing line for for the sort of understanding the stadium, right? Because the Millers obviously inhabited the stadium in its first number of years, four years or so, and then bowed graciously or maybe not so graciously to the arrival of what then became the Twins. Um, but before we sort of get to that uh, sort of origin, I guess, uh, 1960 and the Continental League, right? So it's it's a topic we've talked about. Uh, and it's 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 a it's it continues to amaze me how that uh, 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 the at least the the appearance of that league uh, and all branch rookie was trying to do to to make it uh, appear to be a done deal and a third major league um, uh, it was Minneapolis and, and or St. Paul part of the mix for one of those franchises did that sort of help maybe uh, grease the skids a bit more to get the senators conversation going, or was that just sort of thrown out there uh, and maybe not sort of part of the dynamic? Cause it does seem that, you know, 1960, 1961, a lot of energy started to really start to kind of move pieces that were kind of stuck in the mud. And the answer is yes. Uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul was designated as one of the markets that was going to get a team in the Continental League, but there were several others, Dallas, Fort Worth, Toronto, I think 
Buffalo. I'm not sure about Buffalo. Uh, obviously, New York, because that was the big push for everything. I mean, you have three teams in New York, and now it's one team. And it, it was a team that a lot of New Yorkers weren't going to embrace after they'd been cheering for the Giants or the Dodgers for all those years. They were not going to become Yankee fans. Then you had the country's largest city with only one team when it definitely could handle more than that. So uh, once the Dodgers and the Giants moved to the West Coast, it seems like it was pretty apparent they were going to have to get another team in to New York. And they weren't really discussing expansion yet. And there weren't any teams being talked about in terms of moving to New York. Uh, that that uh, So doing something kind of radical and the people behind the Continental League uh, and how that would have worked, I don't, I don't know. They, they would have been working somewhat in cooperation with the existing leagues. It wouldn't be like coming in as a total outlaw league, like say the American Football League did with the National Football League. Um, it would have been a cumbersome thing with three leagues and eventually maybe trying to have some sort of championship series among them. Obviously, the Continental League would start off on a much weaker basis with its teams. And, but the, the main thing was that it, it did get things going to first that the national league announced expansion even earlier than the American league did, even though the American league, once it did decide on expanding by two teams, it started within a matter of months while the national league with Houston and New York didn't start until 1962. But all of that was in the mix, uh, probably more than anything, uh, making sure that they could get a team into New York. But it's been pointed out, too, that many of these cities it was sort of thought that was the, the Continental League saying, OK, you're going to do this. We'll back off. And so New York and Minneapolis, St. Paul got a team. But then it ended up being a second team landing in Los Angeles and a team in Houston <coughs> and some of the other cities that seemed to be that the Continental League was, was had ownership groups and were going to be doing things with. They got left behind. Eventually, Toronto and Dallas, Fort Worth did get teams, but uh, it was I think the, the <coughs> backers of the Continental League were a little bitter on just how how it finally shook out when they did, when the both leagues did expand and add four teams. Obviously your first game wasn't until uh, the twins had arrived, but um, going back and doing your research and looking at some of the, uh, the standout games, I mean, the, the park was, was essentially the home of the Millers for a cup for a bunch of years. Um, right. And I'm assuming it was, I wouldn't call it sort of minor league and look and feel, but I guess it was kind of right because the the major league team hadn't come, and it's my understanding that once the uh, the Twins did arrive, that there was a bunch of renovation that was was needed to kind of maybe even upgrade it further. Still, uh, maybe you can maybe explain a little bit about those first number of years with the Millers and minor league baseball in the Met because it certainly wasn't the full footprint that the Twins ultimately inhabited. It had the overall general footprint, but uh, it was limited capacity because the grandstand extended only from third base to first base. And when the Twins came, and I'm sure that was part of the plan, they expanded the first two decks 
uh, towards right field and, and had them even curve out into fair territory. And it was pretty much bleachers all the, all the way beyond that that could take a lot of people. And that included in left field. And, and a few years later, they built a double-deck grandstand out there. And that was for the Minnesota Vikings because that would be along the sidelines for the Vikings. But it was it was definitely built knowing that we're hoping to get a major league team and we're going to have to expand it. It was interesting that they built a triple deck stadium right off the bat. And um, that, that was a nice thing. Uh, they, they, they extended only the first two decks when the twins came, but you still had a nice third deck, right? Seats between the, the bases. And there were, it was also, they were able to use newer construction methods and well, mainly cantilever construction. There were no posts in it. County Stadium in Milwaukee had opened two years earlier. And I've, I've asked the Milwaukee baseball historians, did they build, and it was a pretty massive stadium at the time. I said, did they really build that just for the minor league Milwaukee team that was playing in a stadium, much like Minneapolis Millers had Nicollet Park going back to the 1800s uh, in a congested area with no parking, uh, limited capacity, falling apart. And I was told that, yeah, they, Milwaukee built that stadium just for the minor league team, but, uh, and nobody was even thinking about trying to lure major league baseball because it had been 50 years since any teams had moved. Everybody just accepted it. They're in the Northeast part of the country. And, but then Boston national league team, which owned the Milwaukee minor league team, uh, just a couple of weeks before the 1953 season opened, moved in. So at least when here, when they were building Metropolitan Stadium, they were building it with big leagues in mind. In fact, they were hoping they could get a team quicker than that. They didn't really anticipate it that it would take the Millers five years or to take five years to get it. And the Millers would play in it that long. And they really, well, they certainly had their sights set on the New York Giants. The Giants owned the Millers. I, I think Horace Stoneham was at the first game at Metropolitan Stadium, but there were a number of people, officials from the New York Giants who were there, and there was a lot of talk on it. Sports Illustrated had this shiny new stadium in Minnesota, and it could be the next home of the Giants. And it, it was, for a while, it seemed pretty definite. And there, there are things in Horace Stoneham and Walter O'Malley's files that indicate that he was planning to move to Minnesota. And if not for him then also looking at San Francisco, which he did because Walter O'Malley was looking at Los Angeles, uh, once Stoneham got to San Francisco, he liked it. And he just said, I'm moving here instead. So uh, Minnesota missed out on that, and it took a few more years. But um, it, it was, and, and St. Paul was also building a stadium. Um, it was a single deck stadium, but apparently it was one that they could, uh, if they got a major league team to play there, that they could add a second deck. This was indicative of the kind of the fighting between the two cities of not working cooperatively on things. And St. Paul made it clear that if when a new major league team came to the area, they wanted some of the games played at the St. Paul stadium. And there were petitions that said St. Paul will not support a major league team. 
even if it was in a suburb, not even in Minneapolis. But the main reason for putting the stadium out there, the post-World War II trend, was to get it out in places where you could have good highway access and parking. Uh, the, the stadiums from the classic period were built with public transportation. And as they got older and run down and as people were getting out to the suburbs and we're going to be driving to the games and places like as, as quaint as Ebbets Field was that they just couldn't make go of it there. Uh, you know, part you just parked in lots like you still do say with Wrigley Field. That might be one of the better examples of something that survived, um, but still a lot of public transportation that people take to, to Wrigley Field in Chicago. But that wasn't really going to happen with Ebbets Field in Brooklyn and Polo Grounds was getting old, and while Walter O'Malley's was looking hard at other places to play in either Brooklyn or even Queens, um, the Giants just seemed to have the idea that they were going, they were definitely going to get out of town. And the first thought was was Minneapolis. And when they did go there, they went to Met Stadium. It was a better stadium than the one in St. Paul. The one in St. Paul uh, never had good highway access. You know, that stadium, the, the St. Paul Saints used it for a few years, and then it was just known as a white elephant that would have events such as concerts or pro wrestling and, and things like that. And and I, I've been to it, and every time an event would start late because all of the traffic was, there weren't people in the stadium, it was all on, on the roads backed up around it. But in the suburbs, Metropolitan Stadium had good highway access, a lot of space around it for parking. And even Milwaukee, when they built that stadium, it was still within the city limits, but it was a little bit west of downtown. It was out of congested areas where they had good highway access and good parking. And that's what was happening with stadiums that were being built. And the good news for Milwaukee, for Minnesota, was they were a little early before it got to be the multi-purpose stadium. Uh, the football teams just had to wedge their way into a baseball stadium. By the 60s, though, the National Football League was big. And then as new stadiums were being built, they were being built for uh, the tenants of football and baseball being equal, where they could even move stands around to get a better football configuration, but that's when we got those really ugly cookie cutter stadiums. It started with DC stadium in Washington, which became RFK stadium. Uh, St. Louis built a new stadium opened in 66. That was like that. And then you had uh, those three great ballparks that closed up in 1970, Crosley field in Cincinnati, Forbes field in Pittsburgh, Connie Mack stadium in Philadelphia, all replaced by, these round stadiums that were much better for football and just lacking in any kind of charm or ambiance for baseball. And you couldn't tell them apart, you know, Riverfront Stadium, Three River Stadium, Veteran Stadium. You know, you you'd see a picture of a ball game there and, you know, it could have been any one of those stadiums. There was no distinction to them. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch to unpack there. I mean, I think the uh, the one thing is it back up for one second. I mean, the one thing about the Met uh, that uh, seems pretty intriguing to me, uh, a bunch of things do. I mean, you look at some old postcards and stuff when it was first built and it's like literally in the middle of nowhere, it seems, except mm -hmm. for the parking lots around it. Um, but I'm also uh, interested in the fact that the Millers, well, the, the, the fact that the Millers and the St. Paul Saints 
uh, were, were basically sharing the metropolitan area and being pretty decent rivals with each other. I mean, even to the point, I think of doing double headers in yes. each ballpark on the same day. Do I have that right? Yes, I do that on the, the big holidays over the summer months where they play one game in St. Paul. And then uh, initially it was a morning game in St. Paul, afternoon game in Minneapolis or vice versa. And eventually they were playing night games too. But when they had Nicollet Park and Lexington Park, they were about seven miles away. Uh, people could hop on the streetcar and cross the river and um, that 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 fed the rivalry. It was it was a great one. And, you know, the rivalry wasn't just between sports teams. It was between the cities as as well. Yeah, I mean, they, I think they call them streetcar doubleheaders. I mean, you can imagine. But all right. So so when the, the Millers, though, get, get into Metropolitan Stadium, the thing I also find really intriguing is that um, knowing that they they left after 1960 to, as well as the saints to make way for uh, the, the, the major league team. Um, they were doing, I mean, they were doing gangbusters. I mean, they, they were, I won't call it a dynasty, but I mean, they were, they were winning class, their class titles. They were winning league titles. They were in the junior world series in 58 and 59. And, and um, it's just, it's almost surreal that a team that successful uh, in those years would have to be, basically terminated to make way for a, 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 a relocated uh, major league baseball franchise that everybody knew would, would not be an immediate success on the field. Probably. Well, that's what I guess, especially back then what they called progress. And yeah, right. that was the time of it. You know, one of the things here in the twin cities, and I'm more familiar with Minneapolis, but um, it's lamented 60 years later um, a lot of the historic buildings in downtown Minneapolis that got knocked down, it was urban renewal run amok. But everything, you know, getting getting rid of the old and getting uh, something shiny up there, and they had some rundown areas, but it pretty much was just bulldozed literally and figuratively without any discernment for what was worth keeping. And that, even with some of the older ballparks, uh, is that, that we... Uh, that we're nostalgic about now from other places, Crosley Field. Well, boy, we're getting a nice new shiny riverfront stadium here. And might have been a little more luxurious, might have been a little more comfortable. But uh, th that was the, the time. Nostalgia wasn't a thing yet. It was it, it was 50s and 60s post-war, uh, bigger and better. And, and that's was the mindset, but it was going to be with, with Major League Baseball, even though, as you say, the Millers had some success in their final years. They were in three Junior World Series. They won two of them. Um, they, they, th there was a drive to get Major League Baseball that I think most fans were on board with. A couple of things that happened. That when, when the Giants took over the Millers in 1946, the Millers had been independent up to that time. They were maybe one of the last independently owned, meaning unaffiliated with the major league team, um, one of the last of those teams. And then in 1951, they got Willie Mays. He was uh, with the Giants, and he was in their minor league system. And everybody heard about him, and but few people got out to see him in the early weeks of the season, uh, and he was gone by the – the last week of May, 
just plucked away. And that was a signal to the people that the minor leagues weren't being operated the way they used to be. It's an entity in their own right where uh, you could come out and see the same great players year after year. Uh, now it was a development thing as it is now. And when people go see their favorite minor league team, they, they know these guys aren't going to be around too long, especially if they're good. And, but th then um, when they started seeing other cities like Milwaukee and Kansas City, Midwestern cities about the same size, and seeing them get major league teams, uh, well, then, then there was the itch. Let's get, we want a major league team. Um, I don't think the minor leagues were really satisfying the fans as much as they had, even though uh, they were playing well. And you're right, 19, well, this team from Washington, it was historically bad. Uh, and Washington, first in war, first in peace, last in the National League. And the, uh, um, so they, and it wasn't very good when they first got here. It was kind of tough luck for for those poor Washington fans because after all those years of bad teams, that Washington team had a lot of good young players. Bob Allison, Harmon Killebrew, Camilo Pasquale, Jim Codd, Earl Batty. And then they leave, and it took a year for that team to get good. But I don't think it mattered the first year where they won 70 games and lost 90. I don't think that mattered at all to the fans, and that was – well, before I went to my first game, but I could still sense the excitement. And ha having a major league team was what <clears throat> gave your your city a lot of credibility. Um, we had the Minneapolis Lakers here that had won a lot of titles, but that was the National Basketball Association, which was not much of a deal then. And even the National Football League, and we got a team here at the same time, the Vikings that started in 1961. But still at that time, if you wanted to call yourself a major league city, it was that you had major league baseball. Uh, it was it was an ego thing in a lot of ways. And uh, but the, the first 10 years, the, the the, the Twins had the best overall attendance in the American League from 1961 to 1970. Twice they led the league. And they had mostly competitive teams in there starting in 1962. Um, and while the 61 team wasn't that good, it really just didn't matter. It was Major League Baseball. And now you can see Rocky Calavito and Al Kaline and Mickey Mantle and Carly Ostremski coming to your town, you know, and they already had good players to cheer for <clears throat> Killebrew and some of the others, but you're, you're able to go out and see all these other great players. That was a big thing. Well, I, you know, um, the, the transition is interesting too, because um, the footprint too of the stadium obviously is, is changing at this time too. Right. So I, from the Millers to the uh, to the twins, right between sixty and sixty one, there was was it planned or was it uh, additionally added uh, uh, hastily or th there was some expansion of, at least for the seats, right and and some other things. I mean, there was there was some gussying up, so to speak, from from the Millers era to the to that of the twins, right? I think that was a plan that they start with this and with you know having three decks even though it didn't extend out farther and there was a lot of demand when met stadium opened with the minneapolis millers <coughs> i think through the sale of some um kind of souvenir booklets they were able to raise money just to put bleachers in beyond 
um, I think on, maybe on both sides of the grandstand, on first and third, to put bleachers in there to get additional seating. So I don't remember exactly what the capacity was, but once they had it, that a major league team was coming here, um, then they, they expanded and it was planned and it was still chaotic. Um, you know, one of the things, and I'm, I'm a Minneapolis guy, you're going to get my perspective on this from somebody who, who I, loves I would want nothing less Stu, please. <laughs> and I'm opinionated. You, you already knew that, or you'd find out, but you know, Minneapolis, it was Minneapolis business interests that built that stadium in the suburb of Bloomington. Bloomington was a village at that time. And some of the interesting pictures when it first opens, uh, when you get some aerial shots, you see this, this was a cornfield in Bloomington. And just right across the highway that is now Interstate 494, it was called, called the Beltline at that time, uh, you see pictures. And just to the north of that, that's kind of the limit for Bloomington. There was this another suburb in there, Richfield. Well, you can see that that was quite built up, a lot of houses in there. And it was pretty much empty space on, on south of that, which was Bloomington. And okay, it was um, in, in Minneapolis, this was at a time when government worked really well with civic interests, uh, with business for the betterment of the community. Uh, they were proud of working together like that. So it was sort of a civic business political collaboration, but it was Minneapolis business people who sold the bonds to finance Met Stadium. And then as they get into 1960, and they're going to have to expand it again, and Bloomington was a city by this time, no longer a village, but it was more than happy to look at its kind of its parent to the north, Minneapolis, and say, okay, take care of this. And Minneapolis did. I think they put their city credit rating on the line to do what they had to do to get money to expand it. And eventually the Minneapolis got, got tired of that as they got into the seventies and more stuff in Bloomington, which is now maybe about the fifth largest city in the state. Um, but once again, it was, well, you guys take care of this. And Minneapolis said, well, heck, if we're going to do it, we want the stadium here. And what finally happened, there was uh, legislation passed to build a new stadium and without there being a site, it, just the site of it, that, that was a real, a real contentious issue. And so the original legislation in the state was we're going to build a new stadium. We'll have a commission study things for 18 months to decide on just what kind and also where. Well, Minneapolis ended up winning that battle. A lot of bitterness. Bloomington treated it like you stole our stadium. And I treated it like, hey, they gave you something as a gift. 25 years ago, you ingrates, you know, why don't you do something with it? And of course, I think maybe it worked out better for Bloomington. They've got that big shopping mall, which is a big thing to them. But there's a lot of anti-Minneapolis sentiment, uh, certainly from St. Paul. But even you get outside of St. Paul, it's, you know, Minneapolis is always the bully. They're the biggest city. They always get what they want. And as somebody who grew up in Minneapolis, I might look at it from a different perspective, but Minneapolis was footing the bill and keeping Met Stadium going. And so when, when that happened, and it wasn't completed when the Twins um, started, they, they had more bleachers, but uh, I think it was all along a plan that they would expand the grandstand, the permanent seating, 
And the reason they expanded it down the first base side was that that would also be a sideline for the football. So uh, they, they never did expand it uh, going out on the third base side towards left field. I, I suppose there wasn't as much uh, urgency on that because that would be an end zone for football. Uh, and then in the, in the mid sixties, they also, instead of just having wooden bleachers set up beyond the left field fence, that's when they built that huge double deck grandstand, which in some ways I think kind of killed the, the, just the, the, the lines of the ballpark. I think it looked nicer as a ballpark. Uh, the first few years of the Twins. You had a nice permanent grandstand, but then you'd look out to this open outfield, which is traditional or common with a lot of ballparks. And uh, and that disappeared a lot more when the, the multi-purpose cookie cutter stadiums got going. Uh, there was no openness in stadiums at that time. They were multi-decked all the way around so you could fit as many people in there for football. They talk about in Pittsburgh, um, after the, the Pirates moved into Three River Stadium. And it's one of the most scenic places where you've got these rivers coming together. You've got that golden triangle area of downtown Pittsburgh. But from the baseball stadium, you couldn't see it because it was it was uh, uh, double-decked all the way around. And now they've got the new baseball stadium, just a little uh, upriver on the Allegheny River, and most people I know, when they're asked, "What do you of all the new stadiums? What do you, which one do you like best?" They say Pittsburgh, and I'm sure it's just because of this great view. Because now you still have this great scenery and great skyline in Pittsburgh, uh, but you've got an open stadium that people can see it. So uh, with Bloomington, I, I guess you were out in the cow pasture. It, it was pastoral. If you'd look beyond the fences, which you you could and. Um, it's really to see an open expanse of a, of a parking lot and just uh, some development coming up, but kind of a wide open area and nothing scenic like a skyline or a river or anything like that. But it was a good place for baseball. The sight lines were, were good for baseball. What's this? LinkedIn Jobs. Hey, these days, it can be hard to find and hire the right candidates for your small business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs made it easier to find the people that you want to talk to faster and for free. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. My goodness. Focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience and use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus the leading competitors. Yes, that's, it's no surprise, friends, that LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates that you want to talk to faster. Of course. Well, did you know that every week that nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Come on. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash good seats. That's linkedin.com slash good seats to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to our conversation.
though about about the uh, the arrival of football because um i think it's lost on a lot of people that the vikings of the nfl which by the way was actually going to be uh an afl team which was obviously getting going around that time and i think after this would be the second year of the afl's existence and there's a whole bunch of sort of drama around the nfl folks trying to sort of uh, bring that uh, expansion, if you will, of pro football to the NFL brand and variety. But but it actually, I was surprised to learn this, that it actually predated that, that the Chicago Cardinals at the time in 59, I think, played a couple of games up there and, and kind of gave uh, a hint that either they might move as well as what perhaps was needed for that stadium to, to accommodate football, whichever team wound up there. Yeah, and, and the, the Cardinals did play a couple of games here. A lot of things were happening at the same time. Well, baseball was looking at the Continental League, possible third major league, and the Twin Cities, be, because definitely people saw this area as a good spot, something that could, that, that could support major league teams, not just a basketball team, but football and baseball. And th- they were even playing baseball games, exhibition games with major league teams coming in to Metropolitan Stadium. A lot of times it might have been teams playing the Millers, but they had a game between Cincinnati and Detroit, the Tigers and the Reds. Um, it was a exhibition game, but it was... Oh, so they were doing major league exhibitions as well. Interesting. Right, and that was part of, like, we want to show that we can support it. There was you know, a lot of push for people, go out to this game, show them that we deserve a team. And that's also what was happening, too, because the Chicago Cardinals, who ended up moving to St. Louis, those were a couple of regular season games that they played here, unlike in baseball, where they were exhibition games. And they'd been doing exhibition games at Parade Stadium, uh, just on the outskirts of downtown Minneapolis for many years. Uh, Packers were coming in and playing there. And, but so at the same time that you get this Continental League going in baseball and saying, yeah, we definitely want Minneapolis-St. Paul in there, um, a new league was getting going in football. I mean, a r- remarkable story of the American Football League being able to come in and challenge an existing league and, and survive in its entirety. Uh, you know, later leagues like the uh, World Hockey Association and the American Basketball Association had four teams that survived and were absorbed into the other league. But here the, the AFL um, was really successful and they were first Minneapolis accepted a franchise and then saw the chance at the NFL. And I think there might've been some bitterness there in the AFL. It's like, geez, we, we picked you and you said you'd come with us and now you're, you're jilting us for, something bigger, which is what they got. So uh, I think that team that was destined for Minnesota in the AFL went, went to Oakland. That started in 1960. And, and around here, they were happy to wait another year to get a National Football League team. And that's that's been a great success. But this was still at the time where college football was big, but the pro football, you know, into the 50s, so much is made of the overtime game between the Giants and Colts, but there were other things that were happening where it was making that transition to where pro football was getting to be on an equal footing and didn't take even too long after that for it to surpass 
Major League Baseball. But they're in the kind of that transition period, and that's why by the early 60s, as it was communities were building stadiums, they were finally saying, look, we've, we've got to build something that works for both football and baseball, not just a baseball stadium that we can fit a gridiron into, but something that both parties are going to be happy with. Uh, so, so that's how, how it came. And there was excitement about both, but I think 1961, it was still a little bit more where baseball was the sport that gave a community its, its gravitas and, and really stamped it as being big stuff as ha- having a major league baseball team. But of course, getting, getting to getting the national football league and major league baseball the same year, um, that, that was a big thing just for the sports fans, for the people who were going to go to the games and be excited about them, but just for the community in general. And Minnesota is just, it's not the largest city, but it's been one that's been remarkable in many ways for its number of fortune 500 companies that have started here and grown Cargill and 3M and, uh, things like that. There have been a lot written just about the business uh, side of, of things and how powerful that's been. It all, it all works together because the business was big on getting the sports here and claiming that it's a benefit to them, that they can, they're trying to get employees to move here, executives, and a lot of them are sports fans, and they might be more likely to move to an area that has a major league team than somewhere else. It all, it all works together. So that was in my youth as I was growing up, getting a sense of that, of, of this area being big league, not just in terms of sports, but in many other ways. Yeah. And we, we've talked about that in many, many other episodes about sort of, especially around this time, right. Uh, and, 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 you know, frankly, even right through the '60s, in particular, right by the by the end of the decade, you had the NHL and a couple of challenger leagues and stuff all popping up. Right, this this is all a part of a sort of a civic, uh, I guess, belief set that having one of the the big four uh, leagues, and if not more than one of those leagues, uh, domiciled in your town, uh, was a, an immediate. Um, line skipping ticket right to uh major league status literally and figuratively in terms of uh pride and uh uh you know uh, uh, in terms of uh, attracting uh businesses and, and economic uh growth and 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 all kinds of other civic you know warm and fuzzies that come with being associated with a major league franchise in uh, in a top tier sport well, that's a good way to de- describe it and really has been the case. And of course, some of the civic and business leaders, they're, well, they're cheerleaders. They're cheerleaders for their community. And a lot of that cheerleading gets around, I mean, not cheering specifically for the particular team, but cheering for just what you said there, that aspect of it. And, you know, it gets messy when you get into new stadiums and we've had it, we've had it here, you know, I mean, uh, the, the opposition to the Metrodome was for many reasons. I mean, first dome stadium for baseball, you know, that sucks. And it did. And, but, and, and the, the resentment against Minneapolis, but a lot of just should, should the public be financing stadiums? And we went through this period in the 60s, 70s, and then really the, the Metrodome was 
Well, well, Met Stadium came at a good time before they started building cookie cutter stadiums. The Metrodome was towards the end of that timeline uh, when they were starting to get into better things. And by the 90s, we had the Retro Stadium with Camden Yards setting the standard for that. But I kind of look at it from the, the period of when the NFL was still the lesser sport. And so there'd be a baseball stadium and you could fit a gridiron in. And then when they were equals building stadiums that fit both teams, which probably worked better for football, it just, Hey, we've got better seats and more, more seats and better seats for football. And they didn't really care as much uh, if it was indoors or outdoors or had a lot of ambiance, but that really baseball suffered for that. But then getting into the 90s, both of these sports were so doggone big that they were all able to start getting their own their own stadiums. That and, and that's what's happened to so many places where you and eventually here built a new uh, stadium for the Twins, Target Field, and a new stadium for the Vikings. And now we've got a new soccer stadium and even a new minor league ballpark. And you get into everything when you start talking about public participation in it and it's a dueling economists how much does this mean for the economy and there are things that you can you know put your finger on like economic development or taxes or things like that and then the non-economic things are just the the civic pride and all of that and i hear a lot about it just because you know i'm i'm hanging out with the people who are more likely going to be proponents of new stadiums and you know it the bs on that can get pretty thick too i can tell you they're deep um and and then there's economists who say no it doesn't really bring in this much and uh, it seems like the, the rich and powerful at least around here always seem to win maybe not right away but just with uh new new stadium for minnesota go for football because when the metrodome opened uh, the, the University of Minnesota team moved into the Metrodome and, and there was no college atmosphere in there now. Uh, so it's, this has become kind of the land of, of stadiums, of new stadiums. And, you know, it kind of goes that the people who aren't in favor of it just get steamrolled because after they built a new football stadium and a new baseball stadium, then soccer team wants a stadium. And it's like you built one for the football and one for the baseball. You're discriminating against us in soccer. And one way or another, they, they've always gotten their stadiums. Well, it's also interesting, too. I, I, this kind of leads me to my next sort of uh, uh, area of, of questioning is, uh, is sort of the, uh, uh, the feel of, of this stadium. Uh, and it, it just you look at it, and it's ironic that we're having this conversation the day that uh, Buffalo, it looks like, is just about caving in and, and all the government uh, entities that are, be, you know, chipping in for uh, what will be a $1.2 billion outdoor stadium in, in Orchard Park right next to the current Bills stadium. But uh, the stadium, uh, Met, the Met, uh, only housed uh, both the Vikings and the Twins for 20 years. I mean, that's even by today's standards is, I mean, the, the obsolescence, I guess, um, happened a little faster, I guess, than, than even the, the most optimistic, given the fact that the stadium was built in the first place to attract at least a baseball team and was responsible for both of them being in town. 
Yeah, it was, it was a short shelf life for Major League Sports. You can add another five years that it took him to get those teams. But um, I, I wonder how quickly other things are going to go. The Metrodome was built where it was supposed to be 30 years. It was for the Vikings. Uh, the Twins managed to get a lease with a bunch of escape clauses. And, and after 15 years and, and with different ownership, they were pushing for a new stadium right on the river in the latter nineties. And I was thinking, geez, this thing was supposed to go 30 years. This is a little quick and it didn't happen. And there was a lot of bitterness over that. We're going to lose our team, all, all of the threats, the, not just the contraction threat, but moving somewhere else that, that goes with every place. Uh, it's, it's always one of the things that happens, but they got 29 years of the twins in the Metrodome and a little over 30 with the Vikings. And, well, uh, Target Field's now 12 years old, and I'm guessing that we won't be pushing for a new stadium in another eight years. But on the other end, Atlanta, what was that, 20 years in Atlanta? And Texas has been pretty quick. Uh, they, they opened in 94, and that lasted through quick. Uh, yeah. uh, 2019, I think it was, and building even bigger. And whether it's bigger and better or bigger and uglier, I know a Texas fan who's been down there and he hates the new place. And, uh, and they're still trying to use the old Globe uh, Life Field for for other things, like I, the Army. Was uh, one of the uh, uh, Commander in Chief Trophy uh, games? I think it was Air Force and Army or Air Force and Navy or something like that playing in debt. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, it's still around. It's the building is still there. That hasn't even been taken down yet, and so it just adds. To, but I guess my real question though is 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 the the Met though had, and I'm sure this is all rooted in. Uh, you know, people go into games and especially childhood and stuff. It did have it have its, it did have, sorry, I, I can't speak today. It's been a long day. It had its charms though. Right. I mean, even though it was somewhat, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It was kind of uh, disjointed. Uh, maybe skeletal is, is a word, right? Some of the grandstands weren't even connected to the, to the real sort of centered part of the park. Um, but I got to think though, fans found it. I, I know it was a hitter's ballpark for many years, right? That had to be uh, an allure for, for, for certain types of baseball fans. Did it have it, some charms to it? I'm, I'm sure it did. Well, you know, it didn't have the charms of the classic era of, of ballpark building starting say, in saying 1909 and taking it up to Yankee stadium in 1923 with these things that we get nostalgic about. Uh, it was, you say skeletal and it was often known as the erector set. As a rector sets for big in that time, and a lot of the structural steel was exposed. And and it, by the way, it looked might, like it on television too. Depending on whether you were a baseball or a football game, you could. It just felt like there was like you were looking at giant pieces of something that I don't know was well, I guess was, approximating approximating a stadium. Well, it was utilitarian, and I would say it worked because first of all, you had decks that overhung one another. Now, when they went to the Metrodome. And they had to get suites in between the first and the second deck. It meant that the second deck was higher and it was also pushed back. It didn't overlap at all. So if you were in the second deck, you were going to be a little higher, but you're going to be farther back. Uh, man, it, it met stadium, lots and lots and lots of good seats, especially when there's utilitarian in the sense that they didn't have to put uh, posts in there that you'd have to sit behind to hold it up. But that second deck overhung the first deck. So you'd get a little nicer 
vantage point of height, but you weren't that far back from the field because it was hanging over and the third deck was the same thing. And so it, it worked really, really well as a baseball stadium. They never did extend those grandstands down uh, the, the left field side. And that was one of the things when they passed the legislation for a new stadium, but didn't designate a site. Um, it was different options. And one of them would have been to build a new stadium for the Vikings next to Metropolitan Stadium and extend the grandstand for the Met. And so it would have, you know, it would have looked a little bit more, you know, this one long grandstand, not just an abrupt cutoff of it. And, but they, they chose um, for whatever, better or worse, they, they chose a multi-purpose covered stadium in Minneapolis. I can tell you, so I like downtown stadiums better just for going to the games. People, you know, we don't want to come into Minneapolis. We get lost there. We're scared of it. Where are we going to park? Because they didn't have a designated parking lot. Well, one of the things for traffic and everything else, um, and I, I'd like with Metropolitan or with the Metrodome, I'd go downtown and park on the street. And it was cheaper. I might have to feed a meter up till six o'clock, but it was cheaper after that. Uh, well, people would say, oh, gee, I had to pull in the slot. You know what? They charged me 10 bucks. Well, you know, what the hell? You got other options. But also for getting out of there, you know, now, I, okay, I'm familiar with Minneapolis, but getting out of Met Stadium or some of these other ballparks that have just got this monolithic parking lot surrounding it, you're just going to get in line and be at the mercy of getting out of there when you get out of there. You go to a downtown stadium, you got a little bit of savvy. Um, park, you know, if you want to pay to park in a lot, pay parking a lot that's a little farther away it's not only cheaper but you get the heck out of there and people would say well you know minneapolis we're coming in from western minnesota you know we can't. well you know i've done this in cincinnati and cleveland and other places too cities that i didn't know too well but i get there i got a map i got a little bit of common sense i can figure it out and not feel like i'm really getting robbed on a parking fee and also is getting the heck out of out of that area pretty quickly. So, but I think people still, many people, they're they like to complain about how much they have to pay to park, uh, and they they like to not have to make decisions. They just okay, I just follow this car in front of me, and forty minutes I'll be moving or something like that. But uh, I, I kind of like it better. I think I think a lot of times downtown stadiums get a bum rap, and I still like having public transportation and now with target field and they do have these big ramps that surround it. So there's, but they have the light rail that goes to it. And a lot of people use that. I'm, I'm kind of happy to see that sort of the current trend has been to get back, you know, and to do things that revitalize an area like Baltimore did and the Harbor and, and other places and to really be able to put public transportation to use. Uh, so may, maybe uh, getting away from that rap that we had in the 60s and 70s where now I just wanna go see this huge parking lot and pull up and whatever the person taking money for parking wants, I'll give it to them and you know get out of here. There was a lot of that that, was, uh, that created controversy when the Metrodome opened. 
Well, before we um, uh, wrap up, I, I do want to sort of shout out to um, uh, the book that's uh, currently out about Metropolitan Stadium, the memorable games. I, I, we don't have enough time to go into. I mean, I, I, I'm amazed. It is. Um, I had a, a, a. I just have a, a few pages that have uh, available to me, but it, it, it's almost 300 pages of uh, literally. I mean, dozens of games, both Millers and Twins. And sadly, unfortunately, I, you know, I, could there be another volume for Vikings and my beloved Minnesota kicks uh, games too? I would, I would hope so, but, but uh, tis, tis for another day, uh, Stu, I'm sure you've got better things to do than that, but are there any um, just, you know, off the top of your head, are there any uh, particular games or oddities or situations uh, that uh, can be found in this treasure trove of a book that, uh, that might be uh, especially interesting or eyebrow raising, or perhaps people have forgotten about that. Uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm sure you got, yeah, you know, and a lot of, well, society for American baseball research has had this project for 10 years on writing stories of games. And then after they started getting a lot, they started doing books like memorable games in the Astrodome. So we decided to do this with Met stadium and people will know, they know the world series was there and the all-star game was there. Uh, it's uh, even things like Casey's Artovar played all nine positions there. There's a story about that in there, but a lot of them were just really interesting games that people might not remember, but were, were good and exciting games uh, for a variety of reasons. I wrote a lot of them up, uh, you know, 22 inning game that the twins and uh, in, 1969, this is maybe one of the best baseball games I ever went to. The Twins played Baltimore. Dave McNally was 15-0 and 0 coming in. And he and Jim Cott were locked in a pitcher's duel with Baltimore leading one to nothing in the bottom of the seventh inning. And the Twins' bottom of the order loaded the bases with two out. And Rich Reese came out to pinch hit. And he worked the count, 1-0, and 2 and I got to full... And then he put a ball out to left field and the thing carried for a grand slam. And McNally had his first loss of the season. It's one of the best baseball games I've ever been to. But uh, And there's a few other features, sidebars. One of the things that I had fun doing was researching all of the postponements. Uh, and, and for various reasons uh, that happened at Met Stadium, usually rain, but a lot of times wet grounds. And But it, I have it both for the Millers and, and for the Twins, all, all the games that were postponed, there's Tornado that hit close to the ballpark. Uh, that, that game, that was an official game. It was in the sixth inning. They called it off. And some other things, too. Uh, one of the wildest things I've ever been to in 1970, the Twins were playing Boston, and the game was delayed because there was a bomb threat. And most of the people went out to the parking lot. The players went onto the field, and somehow – some fans started getting onto the field too, instead of going to the parking lot. I was there with a friend and we went onto the field. We hung out with the players. It was, uh, and nobody even worried about if a bomb was going to go off. Uh, just a lot of good games, quirky games, uh, different things that it's interesting. You can start anywhere and read about this game or that game. You can read about Sandy Koufax shutting them out on three hits in the seventh game of the world series or, or find some games that maybe you've forgotten about, but are, are fun to read about too. No, it's great. Even if you're not so from Minneapolis uh, or, or the area and, and grew up there and stuff. I mean, just to, to have this level of detail uh, is great because, you know, you look at stats, you look at box scores and stuff. And if you're, if you're, you know, researching stuff and you look at microfiche and you see the, 
the game uh, recounts and that kind of stuff. But to have sort of a compendium of some of the uh, of the game's, uh, you know, highlights and stuff, it just it's kind of like almost a, I won't say a keepsake, but it's kind of like a, a nice parallel to uh, whatever memories you had of, uh, of the stadium generally uh, with some real uh, specifics about uh, some of the exploits. How, how would you describe uh, in your research and, and your memories uh, the visiting teams coming to the ballpark? And let's I'll just keep it to baseball for, for, for the moment. But I mean, what was was the Met sort of a a, um, a stadium that that teams looked forward to or, or, or didn't or was it kind of sort of in the middle? Because uh, it was certainly quirky. It was a little, you know, different of, of its era. And it wasn't sort of, you know, palatial by any means. But, um, you know, or it wasn't the worst ballpark by by any stretch, uh, was it? I don't know, especially in its, its earlier years. Later on, you know, some things started happening. In the 70s, the Twins became passe. Uh, football in general was surpassing baseball and the Vikings with having a lot of big years and the Twins being bland. And uh, and then when the kicks, you mentioned the kicks, the soccer team moved in there. Uh, stadium started, uh, I, I can remember, you know, the goalie would pace for the for the soccer would pace out in right center field and and then just kind of wear the grass down and I remember seeing Hoskin Powell of the Twins it was it had rained then and it was slippery and he went after a fly ball and hit that dirt patch and his feet went under them Billy Martin even protested a game then when he's with the Yankees because the stadium's so run down we shouldn't have to play there but at least in the early years uh, if anything I'd get the impression that it was, it had spacious locker rooms. That might mean more to the, to the visiting players than anything else. And, you know, I, I've been in the visiting locker room in Fenway Park, even, you know, years later and crammed and, you know, it could be flooded. And uh, so I would guess that players liked having just good facilities and whether they, they were, I don't know if anybody's even getting that much in awe about playing at Yankee stadium or Fenway Park with all that history or Comiskey Park, if it was just, even for the players, a little more modern. Hey, just, hey, we got toilets with stalls around them rather than just out in the middle of the room and things like that. I'm not really sure. It's a good question, but I would guess in the 60s that um, they were happy to come to a more modern stadium and just the conveniences. And even fans were, you know, getting getting away from an old ballpark to something where the, maybe the seats are a little wider, the, the restrooms are more numerous, uh, or it's just a little easier and more comfortable to do it. And, you know, at some point down the road, it, you know, this nostalgia wasn't then what it is now. And, and that's where we, we look back in a more nostalgic way over these older stadiums that had that character. Yeah. And I just look as frankly, too, it's also part of uh, one's, uh, uh, you know, impressionable youth, right? You go to games for the first time. I mean, the stadium could be like falling apart, but it's your first sort of series of games. And, and that's the, the memory that gets locked in. I mean, you, you, you kind of sort of, you, you, the hagiography of that, of those memories and stuff kind of just wash over you and you kind of overlook those things or frankly, weren't looking for uh, the things that might've made the facility sort of uh, less than, you know, than, than uh, what it really perhaps was. I, I just do, you know, I know anecdotally from 
uh, my NASL soccer uh, research and memories, frankly, uh, you know, the, the, the whole tailgating thing on the outside, I think that there were, there were many games where even though that the, the, uh, the kicks were maybe getting 30, 40,000 for some of their big games, uh, a lot of the crowd was still actually in the parking lot before the, you know, when the game was going on because uh, they were having such a good time outside in the parking lot. So I, I'm sure all those memories are, are all part of it too. It's not just uh, sort of cut and dry and, uh, Oh, you know, it was obsolete after 20 years. I, I'm sure people have some very, very strong memories, especially if it was their first ever games that they were experiencing at the Met. You know, and the thing is that that's the, same way with people who grew up and were introduced to baseball in the Metrodome. When that closed, you know, many of us are saying, okay, good riddance. Um, but realizing that uh, I saw a lot of people were sad there, like I was when Met Stadium closed. And I've talked to some of them later because I did a book on Twin Cities ballparks. And some of the people who, that's where they first started going to the games with their parents and grandparents. And it's, I, I'm I'm envious of myself that at least my first memories were of Met Stadium, but maybe I'm envious of the people who were going to Yankee Stadium for their first games. It's, it's all kind of, maybe it doesn't really matter so much. It's where we got introduced to baseball and even a cruddy place like the Metrodome for the p- people and their memories that they have of being a kid and, and, and going with their parents to the game. That was special. And the Metrodome's going to hold a little different special place in their heart. Um, uh, with that and so regardless of the stadium it's how nice or anything else there's that part of it too well uh i i love uh the photo on the uh, cover uh of this uh of this book metropolitan stadium memorable games at minnesota's diamond on the prairie and uh, I, I don't know how it was shot it looks like it was almost uh, done with sort of that modern sort of um uh, technique where it looks like it's kind of a, uh, you know, sort of like a, a, a toy or a small little um, uh, object in the middle of, of, of uh, a, bu- a bustle and, and other things going on in, in the, uh, in the, uh, in the picture. Cause it looks like it's a small little um, I don't know, I would call it a toy or a little uh, mini structure in the midst of this sea of a parking lot. And then literally in the midst of, you know, suburban and maybe even exurban um, topography behind it. And it, I think it really uh, gives you a sense of what uh, the early days of this stadium really looked like and, and how avant-garde it was at the time and, and why it was so important uh, in helping lure uh, not just one, but two major league teams uh, and, uh, you know, and bestowing major league status on the uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul metropolitan area. And, you know, it was, it did stand. I mean, it was in a cornfield of all things and surrounded by nothing. And eventually, you know, over time, kind of by nothing. And uh, so it was different than some other places, but everybody was trying to get out of the, those congested areas. But still, when Milwaukee did it, but it was still within the city limits and it wasn't as barren around there. When, when the Dodgers they first played in, the LA Coliseum and moved up to where they could have the huge parking, but there's still lots of stuff around that. But yeah, Met- Metropolitan Stadium was kind of an island for a while out there. All right. Tell me about, uh, g- give me some promotion for uh, this particular book, which literally just came out a couple of weeks ago, I think formally, and just maybe a, a couple of teasers for some of the other books that you got out there too, about uh, the twins and, and the twin cities and ballparks and that kind of stuff. We'll we'll promote all of them on the, on the website and, and socially and all that stuff uh, as well, just to give uh, 
uh, your entire library a bit of a of a look for people to hopefully consider to purchase a couple of copies. But g- give us a few of your uh, your uh, your best uh, your best swings here for uh, promotional purposes. Well, I mean, of recent beyond this, too, I. Yeah. Uh, did a book with the history press. I'd first worked with them about eight years ago, just a straightforward book on the Minnesota twins and their history written about it in many ways, but with other things. And, and they did a book a few years ago on arenas in Cleveland stadiums and arenas in Cleveland. And they said, what would you think about doing this for Minnesota? And I said, well, how about just baseball stadiums and just in the twin cities? And to take it all the way back to the, the history of the old ballparks, even in the 18th, uh, 1800s, and to bring it right up to the current things of Seabird Field, where the Minnesota Gophers play, uh, the CHS Field of the Saints, and Target Field. So that, that was a good one. And the other thing is, in 2006, I did Baseball in Minnesota, which is an all-encompassing book on that. And we just updated that one. Too, it came out last last year. So if, if you're giving me an opportunity for some free plugs, I'll take them with those books. Baseball in Minnesota and historic ballparks of the Twin Cities. And the new one, Metropolitan Stadium, those memorable games. Um, that's right. And that's um, that's out uh, as we speak as well. Uh, this is this has been great. I, I you know, we love to go uh, deep and try to be as comprehensive as possible. And um uh, we, we've done a little bit of exploration in uh, in the Minneapolis St. Paul area. A couple of episodes on the on the former North Stars for sure, and um, you know. I, I, but uh, the, the Met uh, is uh, is one of those things that um, you know. Growing up in in the seventies, as I did as a kid, was always on the uh, on the schedule. You certainly saw it when the Yankees, where I grew up, uh, were out of town. You knew that they were uh, going to be playing in that stadium. And then being a Cosmos fan, watching soccer, they knew that that. Uh, there was going to be a night game at least once a year. And, and frankly, some very memorable playoff games, which I don't want to get into at the Met uh, against the Cosmos that the kicks were really yeah. successful at. <laughs> yeah, um, the kicks are a story in themselves with Met Stadium. And uh, I think they got mentioned, but well, you could probably do a book on not just memorable games, but <laughs> memorable experiences people had there with the kicks. All right, there it is, the Met. Uh, who could forget it, uh, especially after a conversation like this? Um, and one great way uh, to celebrate the memories of the stadium is to um, get Stu's new book. It's called Metropolitan Stadium, Memorable Games at Minnesota's Diamond on the Prairie. It is published by Saber. It's just out. It's uh, It's got a great cover of, uh, of the stadium in its heyday, um, literally surrounded by uh, thousands or at least hundreds of cars uh, in the parking lot that surrounded the stadium. And uh, just to the right in that cover picture, you'll see uh, a glimpse of the Met Center, which came about in 67. Uh, that was the indoor palace, if you will, things like the uh, Minnesota North Stars, etc. Um, fascinating. Uh, and and the book is, is great. It's really detailed. Like if you if you ever went to a game, either for the Millers or the Twins, uh, chances are, if you have memories of those games, uh, it is there and in great detail in this book. Uh, and Stu's got a whole wealth of other books. But best way to find them, of course, is to uh, you know search for them online at, uh, at say at Amazon or whatever. But you can also check out uh, Stu's website at stuthornley.net. That's Stu is S T E W, 
T-H-O-R-N-L-E-Y, StuThornley.net. You can also follow Stu and all of his uh, sports exploits. By the way, he's uh, he's the official scorer, or at least one of them, for today's version of the Minnesota Twins. That's got to be interesting and, and fun also, too. I believe he's also a part-time scorer uh, officially for the uh, Timberwolves uh, in the NBA. So uh, lots of things to follow him there on Twitter. Uh, and he's at Stu Thornley, all one word, at Stu Thornley. What else? Let's see. How about uh, while you're online, go to our website, goodseatsstillavailable.com. We post all of our episodes there for streaming and uh, for all you newbies out there that uh, want to just get a, a lay of the land. Obviously, the best way to follow us or, or get every single episode is to subscribe wherever you get good podcasts. We're, we're available just about everywhere, so there's really no excuse not to add us uh, to your feeds and your downloads. Um, while you're there, you can search up this episode, 255 with Stu, and uh, conveniently click the link there and give us a few shekels of love uh, when you purchase uh, the Metropolitan Stadium book or any of the other books by Stu or any of the other books available worldwide at, at Amazon. Uh, it's uh, the least you can do to help, uh, help us keep our lights on. Uh, and we certainly appreciate when you do so. Uh, we appreciate your emails. Uh, we're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. We appreciate you following us on social media at, uh, let's see, we're on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, on Instagram, we're at Good Seats Still Available. And there's a little Facebook page devoted to us, too. Uh, you can uh, subscribe to our weekly email newsletter. Just uh, tool around on our website and find the link there. Uh, our thanks, of course, to Jerry Payne, who produces this uh, extravaganza with all of his editing wizardry. We appreciate that. And uh, we, of course, want to leave you with some uh, some audio goodness uh, on our way out, we like to do this for you every time. And uh, I guess we'll go to the Twins. Uh, 1987 was the first time that they actually won uh, the World Series as the Minnesota Twins. Um, and um, who could forget uh, that legendary season? Uh, obviously, they had moved at that point by into the uh, the Metropolitan, uh, what am I calling it? The, um, the Metro Dome. There you go. The Metro Dome. Lots of Mets. Mets there. Uh, and um, at that time, a uh, basically a new theme song kind of evolved and came into the into the mix. Uh, it is by Marv Masterman and his orchestra, and of course, it's the Wind Twins Polka coming at you from 1987. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye bye. We're gonna win, Twins. We're gonna score. We're gonna win, Twins. Watch that baseball soar. Crack out a home run. Shout a hit hooray. Cheer for the Minnesota Twins today. And Cracker Jacks I don't care if I never get back Oh, we'll root, root, root for the home team If they don't win, it's a shame For it's one, two, three Strikes, you're out at the old ball game
Thank you.